Hi there, I hope you're doing well. Here is Francisco, and welcome to a new episode of Global Perspective. Today, we have a very interesting interview with Larissa Basso. Uh, she's a lecturer at Stockholm University, specialized on sustainability, development, and um, in the region of Latin America, really focusing on Brazil. So we have a lot of interesting questions prepared for her. We're going to have a really good discussion on sustainability and sustainable development, and specifically on the energy transition in Brazil. So, you know, just enjoy the interview and thank you for listening. Hello, Larissa. How are you doing? It's really a pleasure to have you here in Global Perspective. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francisco and Donna, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here, too. How is the weather in Paris, Donna? I've asked you a lot of times, but I'm, in I'm still interested how it's summer in Paris, Donna. It's still so sunny, and I enjoy it so much. I really love sunny weather, so it really brings up my mood. It's fantastic here. That's good. It's the same here in, in Colombia, and I think it's so similar in, in, in Brazil with the sun. The sunshine is really, really cool to, to just, you know, make you feel a bit better. Yeah. So um, how about we start? That's true. We do have sunshine today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's nice. Um, how about we start with an icebreaker, uh, Larissa? So just before we get to know you, like we always do this in Global Perspectives, before you tell us a bit about yourself, I just want to have like a spontaneous um, activity with you. So I will say a word and then you're going to tell me what comes to your mind um, when I say this word. So it the first would be ice. Breaker. Cheap. Cheap. Mm. I don't know, something that breaks too easily, that's not so good. Nuclear. Nuclear power. Development. Hopefully sustainable. Belo Horizonte. Belo Horizonte, our yeah. city. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, a wonderful place to visit. Highly recommended. <laughs> okay. Uh, UN. UN. I, I think an institution that has worked well for a long time, but needs some updating now. Shrimp. Shrimp. Shri shrimp, like the They're animal. endangered. The animal, they're endangered species due to our overfishing nowadays. Okay, thank you so much for your honest and spontaneous answers, Larissa. Um, now I wanna, I, I, <laughs> now I wanna uh, just talk a bit about um, what you do. So if you were to introduce yourself in a minute, how would it go? Okay, so I'm Larissa, I'm a Brazilian. Um, I, I'm a mix between a lawyer, a researcher and a teacher, which is the, the job that I like the most. And I've studied since uh, graduation um, law, international relations, international politics, and my passion are environmental issues. I try to have an interdisciplinary view over the issues that I study, and I try to, to uh, merge different views on that because I think that nowadays it's very complicated to understand an issue from only one perspective. So hopefully... I cannot have all, but I try to talk to, to colleagues from other fields also. And I like very much to try and 
my passion is to try to understand environmental issues and try to come up with some um, contribution that um, I could also add to, to, to the solutions of the issues. Great, thank you so much. And you said that you're like, like one of your passions when it comes to topics is uh, environmental issues, right? So how come, like when yeah. did you realize this is like, I really like um, environment, environmental policy, maybe just the nature. How, how did you become interested in, in, in sustainability and envir environmental issues? So that was like, when I was doing my first master's in international law, I came up with, I, I got, I came across some disciplines when I was taking the courses for the masters. And one of them, I decided to try to go outside law because that was my major, but I could take courses in different uh, um, parts of the university. And that was in, in economy, economics, economy. And they were talking about these theories of economic development. And that was like a history of that. And then I realized once we go through the 20th century, by the end of it, they were always talking about sustainable development, sustainable development. And I had had classes in, in the law, law school about uh, environmental law and how it works in Brazil and how it worked in Sao Paulo state and Sao Paulo city that was where I was studying. And then I said, okay, I don't know much about that. And it sounded very interesting because it was something that we were hearing a lot, but we didn't really understand. At least I didn't what it meant. So that's how it started. Like it caught my attention and I said, oh, I want to learn more about that. And then I went for a second master's and then I decided to do my PhD on that. And that's how it started. <laughs> Super interesting. This is like, um, when I think about that, I'm, I'm just really excited to see what my future, how my future will develop, because I really like to hear these stories and on how people got there and how people um, found their, their passion, their interest. And uh, so this is just great, uh, good stuff. Um, thanks, Larissa. Um, over to you, Donna. It's my pleasure, because now we're going to talk about an issue I'm also really passionate about. I would like to dive deeper into energy transitions. In my personal opinion, one of the most current issues in our centuries. So let us talk first about harder to decarbonize sectors, which I conceptualize sectors, for instance, such as transport, or also industry, steel, cement, which are mostly rely on fossil fuels. Larissa, how do you think we could develop a low carbon future in this harder to decarbonize sectors? What is the sector's potential to change and how fast do you think can it change? Okay, so I think that in, in the specific case of Brazil, we can make a difference uh, regarding what we have in the global average. Because in Brazil, two things are very peculiar, and not only in Brazil, but Brazil compared to global average, and then some other countries are going to have similar profile of Brazil. So first, not all, like, uh, globally, energy is the major source of uh, carbon emissions. And when you talk about decarbonization, automatically you need to talk about energy transition to low carbon sources. And that's true also in Brazil, of course, because energy is still like a central core point of the economy, everything works around it. However, in Brazil, we, are, we have other sectors that also have very high uh, emissions, such as 
uh, land use change, and then we talk uh, more specifically about uh, deforestation and agriculture. So when you talk about um, low carbon transitions in Brazil, energy is part of it, but it's not everything. Because if we don't reduce our emissions from land use change and agriculture, we are not going to be a low carbon country, like a low carbon, have a low carbon future in Brazil. We need still to focus on those sectors too. And then the second point that I would make, and then specifically on energy, because we have a history of hydropower in Brazil, when you talk about electricity, then we are not getting to transport. This is something I want to say later. Um, we are actually a lot more low carbon than the global average again. We didn't have so many fossil fuels in our electricity matrix. So even though we still have to change because what's happening in Brazil is actually the opposite. We are reducing the participation of low carbon sources because right now it's very difficult to have more hydropower for other reasons that we can talk about that include even sustainability regarding biodiversity, for example, or social impacts, but it's very hard to have a new hydropower. And we started having more thermal power plants. So we're going in the opposite direction of the world. But if you get like the total amount and compare, we are much ahead. So we are kind of have a clean electricity matrix in Brazil. And then what is really peculiar is that on transport, we do have ethanol, but we are so much um, structurally, I think we are lagging behind other countries because we have ethanol, but most of our freight is done by um, roads and those uh, trucks that are not efficient, they run on diesel. So there are a lot of things that when you put together, they don't make sense. So I think the first thing I would say about these low carbon transitions in Brazil regarding the sectors is that we need a plan. We don't have a plan right now. Things are moving as they used to move uh, because of um, decisions that were taken in the 20th century. And we still didn't uh, update those decisions to put the country on track to be low carbon. We are just there because of something that happened before. So I don't know if you want to make some more specific questions, but that would be my overview about Brazil. Thank you so much for this overview. I've learned a lot of new stuff. I was also wondering, what is your opinion maybe on hydrogen? It's like this new topic, it's like here in Europe, uh, pretty hype. So I was wondering, do you see, what is your opinion on this fuel? And do you see it in America also as an option for transport or more difficult? Because I'm not sure if you need to import it or rather export it. Uh, you mean hydrogen, right? The green, blue. Exactly. Okay. I think we do have, you know, it's a topic that is also being talked a lot here, but I think there are challenges are, um, we have other challenges that come first. Um, first, for example, we, if you, you want to, to create a low carbon, for example, in transport, in my opinion, we cannot be so dependent on individual transportation. I don't think that's sustainable in the long run. So yes, it would be great to have the hydrogen technology. And the unfortunate part is that we have de-invested so much in innovation and science and technology here in Brazil that I find that 
it's not going to be something that we're going to develop ourselves, which is really sad. Any um, the investment in science and technology is always going to cost the country in the long run, doesn't matter which topic. But I think that in Brazil, we would become so much, like we would advance so much in this low carbon direction just by having, for example, multimodal transportation using more um, the hydroways and uh, trains to transport freight and in cities to have a better infrastructure of public transit. So my view is that this is something that is, needs to be part of the, the discussion because when you talk about hydrogen and then you just keep uh, everybody going in their own individual cars, this is still not sustainable in a country where you have a lot of traffic jams, like in Sao Paulo, where I'm from, that costs a lot, that costs a lot of health, that costs a lot of the economy, the people time, you waste so much time on traffic. So of course, for the pollution, air pollution, it's better to have hydrogen. But if you think sustainability more like a holistic concept, it's better if people are using the train and then perhaps the train is run by hydrogen, you know? But I find that it's much more difficult to have the infrastructure changing from individual to something that is public. And that would have a, such a high impact in Brazil because of the situation that we have that yes, I'm all for the technology for individual and I think we need to change. But I think the most important is to change this mentality from the individual only to something that we share and then we can be like more collective, more together. Thank you so much for the overview, especially on the transport sector. Let us stay with Brazil, with your expertise. It's really fascinating. You already drawed a bit the pathway to deep carbonization, but maybe you can say again, like the future they should, should focus on and also hydropower. You have touched on something really interesting, also negative impacts on biodiversity. So we could discuss, is hydropower really that green? What could be negative impacts? And also, how do you think, especially in Brazil with the huge inequality, how can we make energy access and energy transition and energy security more just that it goes to all income levels and it's fair and just so energy transition, which is made for all? So I think regarding hydropower, um, it's we need to, like, first, I always tell my students, no energy is completely clean or no energy has no impact. That doesn't exist. So whenever we are talking about reducing the impact, the first thing you should think about is energy efficiency because then you need less energy. That's great. Anything else is going to have an impact. But we have to be like hydropower is cleaner than fossil fuels if you uh, take some precautions like when you have the dams, if you're having like a reservoir, you don't have the run of the river technology, then you clean the vegetation. So the vegetation is not going to be there, uh, putrefying, becoming like um, ro rotting, because that's going to emit gas and that's not good. So this is only talking about the emissions, okay, methane or carbon emissions. But if you're again talking about sustainability as a whole, then it also depends where you're building your hydropower plant. If you're going for a, a region where you have lots of biodiversity and you already have uh, impacts 
from reducing biodiversity, then when you put this into the equation, it's no longer only climate change, but other planetary boundaries that we say, like um, species, um, the, the genetic diversity too, which is very important for our planet, then perhaps this is not so straightforward, then you need to, to compensate. And another thing that is also interesting in Brazil is that when we had um, developed all our potential for hydropower plants in the southeast and south of Brazil, some in the northeast, the remaining high potential was in the Amazon region to build. And there, either you had a really big reservoir or you would have this run of the river technology, which is you have small dams, but then you have a lot of change uh, of the output, the electricity output. If you have the high, like the high river season or the low river season due to the hydrological differences. And then because we did the run of the river, um, we need backup systems, right? For when you have lower electricity outputs from the, those hydropower plants. And then your backup system becomes very important. So if your backup system is not clean, and in the case of Brazil, it started to be natural gas, then in our case, we're replacing hydropower with natural gas. That's going the opposite direction that the world is going. So it's very complicated when you put everything together because hydro is clean and hydro is safe. But Nowadays, it's not possible to have, at least in Brazil, uh, some energy planning that is focusing on hydropower only to expand the electricity output anymore due to all the impacts that it has, not only for biodiversity, but for traditional communities, indigenous communities, because the, where the potential is, the remaining potential is in areas where this is very something very important. And so I think... I don't want to demonize hydropower because that's not a way forward. It, it plays a role. But nowadays we need, for example, to mix better wind and solar, which are the new technologies that we have a lot of potential to explore still with perhaps what we have from hydropower. And then just to close this topic, in Brazil specifically, where the big hydropower plants are, are also in regions where climate change is going to hit us by reducing the rainfall uh, levels. So when our reservoirs are not uh, refilled in the rainy seasons, we have a situation that we have now in Sao Paulo, for example, we need to turn more thermal power plants on. So in the long run, to the prediction that the scientists have already made, we need to start thinking about uh, balancing with wind and solar because our hydro is not gonna be enough because of the, the situation that already is there. So if we don't do that, we're gonna have more fossil fuels in the electricity matrix. And that's completely something completely deleterious if you think about the, the future. So um, it's, it's very nuanced depending on the situation that you, you, you need to, to, to look, the, the answer that you're gonna have to face. Uh, it's about choice. And I, I think uh, as a society, we should be more aware and make those choices. And then for your second um, question regarding energy access, that's very true. And if we look only like to urban uh, population, one thing that is really striking is the electricity cost 
is not something that uh, a lot of people can afford in Brazil. And especially when you start turning the thermal power plants on, because then the, the costs are higher. That's how it works, because the hydropower is already um, a technology dominated. So when you have the reservoir, then electricity uh, prices go down because it's cheaper to have hydropower um, electricity coming from there. But anyways, like in a situation that we are here now, we are going to the winter and we have thermal power plants on. So the electricity prices are going up. A lot of people, imagine in the pandemic, they lost their jobs or they didn't even have a formal job at first place. They can't afford it. So, of course, you're going to have those illegal connections to the grid that people are kind of stealing electricity. But we're so dependent on like electricity to leave these days that you kind of start asking, this is not something uh, legal, this is not something that helps, but what else do these people can do? So I think we, again, we need to have, um, when you talk about just turning the power plant, the thermal power plants on and increasing the electricity prices, that's not gonna help because if you keep the prices too high, people can't pay. So I think we need a strategy and we need to consider that this is such a heterogeneous country with such inequality that you need uh, a plan in order to include more people, especially in situations as we have now with the pandemic. Otherwise, why you're doing this and you're just dividing the population and putting one group against each other? And that's never going to help if you try to build like uh, this future, common future together. Thank you so much, Melissa, for this wonderful overview. I think one sentence would stuck in my hand when you, uh, in my head when you said, "No energy is completely clean." It's, I think something we should be aware of, even when we talk about hydropower, hydrogen. There's the negative impacts, and you already made a really smooth transition from, I would say, fuels to already actors. And I would like to focus more on the actors. For example, what is the role of states or supranational organizations um, or entities such as BRICS? I remember you focus on BRICS, especially on Brazil. What do you think is the role of these emerging countries in global environmental and climate governance? What do you see should Brazil or BRICS in general be the role in international climate change negotiations? What's your opinion? What role should they take? Um, should mm -hmm. they have like divergent views because they're different countries within this entity or should they have a common opinion or divergent approach because their countries are so different? What's your take on this one? Okay, so, well, in my view, emerging economies, they are, like, what makes them emerging? Maybe not so much the fact that they are really emerging because we can d debate that. Some people are going to say, yeah, they were emerging, but they are not so much poor, so... Maybe not, but one thing that they have in common is that they represent countries that are very heterogeneous inside. So those societies in each of those countries, you're going to find groups that are very different, not only in racial composition, but also on the opportunities that they have in their lives, the capabilities, if we want to use the term that it comes from the Amartya Sen idea of um, having uh, people able to live the life that they want so all those countries they have they are very heterogeneous in my view i think they would play a very important role if they come and represent this heterogeneity that is very different 
um, not better and not worse, but very different from realities of other countries. I know that there are a lot of heterogeneity in industrialized economies and least developed countries too, but I think they're very, something that are very striking in emerging economies. So in this way, when you come from this reality that is very contentious and very heterogeneous, I think that they could play a very important role if they just always bring this topic to the table and say, when we are discussing, for example, environmental issues, I think it's very important that emerging economies always say, okay, we need to think, for example, that in different parts of our countries, we're going to have different solutions, that one size fits all solutions, they're never going to work in countries that are as heterogeneous as the, the emerging ones. So we need flexibility. And you need sometimes different approaches to policy making or to policy enforcement, if it is to be something um, just, because it's not going to be something just if you have a policy that is applied the same way to every different group, because they are very different between themselves. So in my opinion, yes, they should come to the table. They should participate as representatives of this heterogeneity that we have, not only in their um, countries, like the composition of the countries, but like the world is like that. And perhaps we are a bit of a sample of that. And we should never forget this when we are talking about global challenges, because we are all in this together for sure, but the solutions for each country and each group are gonna be different if we want to be just. So that would be my take on that. Great, Larissa, especially that they highlighted the concept of heterogeneity, I think was really important because we need to keep in mind that BRICS have countries really divergent ideas, concepts, and or the context. And again, you made the perfect transition. You said global challenges. This is what I would like to focus on again. And for my side, my last question is, Larissa, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge we face today as humanity? What do you think the one environmental challenge which is really the most pressing? Um, on energy um, or like... Environmental on, issues in general can also be... In general, okay. I think that we have lots of different challenges, but they all come together in one. We have already from the, like uh, developed a lot from research, the concept of planetary boundaries. So we know that the earth system, it works together. So everything is related. Energy, climate change is related to biodiversity. If you change the concentration of nitrogen and phosphorus because of fertilizer that is going to acidify the ocean. And I think the most important thing is to realize we as a species, and again, we as a species, I'm over generalizing because then we would need to go inside this species, the human species, and look which groups have a different contribution to that. But in any way, we became so powerful as a species that we are affecting this uh, global um, uh, equilibrium, if we want to say that we had before. And sometimes by trying to fix one thing, we are making the other thing worse. So I think even though this is complex, we need to start thinking about solutions 
that take into consideration the different planetary boundaries. So it doesn't matter to, like if you fix only climate change, but you kill all the biodiversity, that's not going to work. You need to consider biodiversity. You need to consider the ozone layer. You need to consider those things together because they're all part of a balance that we need. And I am super um, for the idea that we don't fix environmental problems without looking to social problems because these are very much at the root of um, why the environmental problems came at first. So I think the biggest challenge is to start having conversation about how to address the challenges together and not one specifically and just to try to solve these very specific things, but then forgetting about a lot of other things. And that's very challenging. I don't think we are doing this enough, but I think that we don't um, develop this framework unless we work towards that. So I think we should. We should start trying at least to consider the complexity and not oversimplifying things. Again, Larissa, a lot of concepts I will take home today, planetary boundaries, global equilibrium, and also the link to social problem. It's a really wonderful end, way to end the podcast. And from my side, Francisco, would you like to take over? Thanks, Larissa, for this very interesting insight into the topic of your academic expertise. So I have um, another question, like a final rather academic question, but I'm also going to mix it with an um, opinion-based question. And that is, there's, there's always this discussion between um, shall we have a radical change or shall we transition um, through different, different st steps? So like um, slowly transition into a more sustainable society. And for me, it's a bit difficult to think about as, um, um, a transition that is not radical today because the challenge that we're facing is for me quite radical. So my question is, how relevant do you see radical change as a, as a way to transition towards a truly sustainable society? So that is going beyond one's anthropocentric and neoliberal view of the world because in my opinion, um, one of the issues that we have is that we're always thinking about us as humans and, and, and the, 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 the things that interest us and the purpose and, and, and goods and services. And we think that the more goods, the more services, the, the happier we're going to be. And so this relates to both neoliberalism and your liberal way of thinking and also an anthropocentric way of acting and and doing things, relating ourselves with the world. So, you know, I just want to hear from you. Um, do you think that radical change is what we should aim at, or or and how can we really change being based in these societies that are deeply um, detached? I, I feel from a holistic way of understanding nature and 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 our societies and 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 really understanding sustainable development and some, as something that is environmentally, socially, and economic sustainable. Um, is, this, is it clear? Mm -hmm. I get it, I get it. So maybe I will divide in two parts because we could think about radical change as being fast or radical change about being about a complete different way of seeing the world. So if you talk about speed, 
I would say that it, that is really hard because even revolutions, when they take place, they usually don't solidify unless you have a lot of time between the event and then, you know, the new reality. The truth is that human beings, they don't actually change fast. We have this inertia inside ourselves. This is like for biological or genetic or whatever reasons. Even when you go in, in a diet, that's going to be super hard. And everybody tells you that the change that sticks is the one that you go and you make every single day a little bit, or at least you keep doing the same thing every single day until you really get into the new habit, because that is super hard. So in terms of being fast, I wouldn't be optimistic because I think that we need uh, those steps are going to take time. And because we're talking about something collective, you need to get people on board. And then again, you need time to, to do this. However, if you're talking about uh, radical in the sense of having a new system that is going to be less neoliberal or not, I am more optimistic because for two reasons. First, people are realizing that we cannot go like that. And I wouldn't even only say about that from the environmental point of view, because clearly now and with the younger generations, this is even more clear. We see the climate strikes. You see um, people going to the streets and the younger generation very, very worried about the plants, sometimes much more than the older generation. So they are understanding that this is not sustainable. It has never been. And if they want to have more quality of life, then we need change. So this is one aspect of it. Uh, and I think that's something very, like people are realizing from this perspective. But another thing that people, perhaps with the pandemic, it really struck it even more is that we have more, 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 but we are unhappy. We're not happy people. We are dependent more on more on drugs, the, the style, the living, um, like the type of life that you need to have if you want to keep consuming and accumulating is a life that you're not owning your time. And I think people are very aware of that, that having time is something super valuable. And perhaps if we consume less, we could have more time. Of course, we need to discuss this again because in some places this is possible because of social protection. In other places, this is not. So again, I don't want to oversimplify this because that's not the point. We always need to consider heterogeneity. But I think that, and I'm very optimistic when I talk to younger people, most of all, that they are realizing that. What is a good life? A good life is a life where you can have time for yourself. So perhaps you don't need to accumulate so much things. And then if you don't need to buy so many things, of course, you still need the social protection and everything. Then perhaps we could have a different system that is not going to be about no growth, but it's going to be more like a circular economy or at least closer to that, that we could have something that people could actually feel more free to have time for that. So I know like um, it's something very, sometimes you have to have a strong hand, mental health when you are with environmental issues because it's very easy to get depressed. It's all problems and very hard to solve. 
but there are strikes of hope that we should not ignore. And I think that those changes, even though they are patched, the patchwork changes, they are true. They are happening. So I would say not realistic, not uh, pessimistic, not uh, pessimistic or optimistic, but realistically, we need to understand that this is something that is already taking place, but it's going to be slower than it should. So the 1.5, I'm not also optimistic about that, but every uh, improvement that we do, even if we don't reach 1.5, is completely valuable because it's putting us into the right direction. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much. And thank you also for, you know, just, uh, first of all, taking a rather um, optimistic or let's say uh, alternative way of responding to my question. And also thank you for linking not only the environmental part of sustainability, but also social and human welfare part of sustainability. Also when it comes to the way that we consume, that is just not sustainable, not even only because of environmental reasons, but also just because, um, well, and this just, just, just applies to my own life because I, I'm, I'm talking from my perspective. It is just not sustainable to, to think that the more you consume, the, the better you're gonna be. And, you, and, and I, have to, I have to understand this sometimes because I'm just used to this thinking and reasoning that I think this is true, in my in my mind but then i realized this is actually not true but why don't we go into um like let's say um a more fan activity just to wrap up um i will i will start a sentence and you just finish a sentence with whatever comes to your mind so one thing that most people don't know about me is that i like to run When I wake up, what makes me stand up and have a reason to start my day is? To think about the coffee that I'm gonna bake just after that. Oh my God, I have to say like, <laughs> uh, we've had a lot of interviews and um, this is like a recurring, a recurring um, answer. And this, I just couldn't agree more, you know? I, I'm just, I'm, I'm super happy I'm in my parents' place and they have a really nice coffee machine. I don't have one, but in my parents' place, they have one. And I'm always so excited to just, uh, you know, and grind the coffee and, 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 and do the whole process. I, I just really love it. So um, yeah, just great, good answer. There's not good answers, but I just really love this answer. Um, if I had not been a lawyer or a scholar, I would have done the following. Oh, that's a hard one. But I think that I would work uh, like, you know, like a farmer. I like very much to be around the, the, the small plants in the garden. I'm not good at that. But that's time that I value, like it's fun. So perhaps I would go in that direction. Cool. And uh, 10 years from now, the most possible scenario I see for the energy transition in Brazil is? That's very hard. I think we need to sit down and plan because I, if we don't do it, that's not going to be nice. And I really hope that we can at some point uh, change that. Because if nothing is done, we're going to have more fossil fuels and you're going to have prices that less and less people can pay. So I hope that we can sit down as a society soon and start adjusting that and becoming like in a putting our country in a better path. Last question. Um, what are the good news of the day? What have you heard today that makes you feel like, oh, this is something nice? I think we have to... Whenever we are especially 
that's true for every, all the time, but especially when are living situations like the ones that we are living now, we need to pay attention to the good. Otherwise, we forget that there is good in the world and it's very easy to go very depressive. So I think one thing that is very slowly working, but it's working, is the vaccination in Brazil. It's advancing slowly and that's very good. Uh, a lot of people are having more hope from that. And I think that we need to pay attention to that. And one other thing, if I can add, like having two, it always is something that keeps my faith. And I always look to that whenever I'm losing my faith is looking to the younger generations. I feel that the children and like um, uh, the teenagers nowadays, they are so much more aware of things that thank God they're going to be the owners of the planet soon. So that keeps my faith, and I think we should always pay attention to that. Thank you, Larissa. Um, Donna, do you want to wrap up um, our podcast interview? It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Larissa. It was very interesting, especially for me, who's also interested in environmental policy issues. It's wonderful to have an overview of Latin America, especially of Brazil. I think it's been very inspiring not only talking about environmental issues, also about the social impacts, but also about your human values. And you've been a really warm person and we've been so happy to have you in this podcast. It was very inspiring. I took a lot of things off. Well, thank you so much for the invitation again. It was a pleasure <laughs> and I'm always here. Whenever you need me, you want to talk, I'm always around. <laughs>